Hey there. This is another interview from Mark in our Spring One Platform Speaker Series. It's a pretty good one. I hope you enjoy it. Why don't you check out the conference that this is uh, pulled from, Spring One Platform. It's over at springoneplatform.io. It's October 7th and 10th in my hometown of Austin, Texas. And if you want to get $200 off registration when you go to springoneplatform.io and register, use the code S1P200 underscore M Heckler. That's S1P200 underscore M-H-E-C-K-L-E-R. You can also check the show notes at pivotal.io slash podcast uh, to get that spelled out to you. So with that, enjoy the episode. Today on our Women of Spring One platform series, I'm joined by Erin Schnabel. Erin, if you would, please tell our listeners a little bit about you. So I've been at IBM for a surprising to me 20 years. I've been working with Java for that amount of time, which is also kind of scary. I think we established there was one time I was talking with Adam Bean, uh, who's, a, who's a Java champion, and we, we figured out, I think I started with Java 1.1. I don't think I had 1.0, but I had 1.1. And so I spent all that time working with distributed computing. I started with Corba, all of that stuff, watched the rise and fall of the app server. And now at IBM, I'm working a lot with Spring within the context of Kubernetes um, and some new open source projects that have been coming out that, that try to make it easier to write Java apps of any kind uh, and get them deployed in Kubernetes environments. And that's a really good summary, I guess, within the tech realm. But let's go back to maybe how you got into tech, because obviously that's a good history with IBM. It's a good history of some things you've done. But what was life before IBM? So I landed in IBM right out of college. But the before before, falling into tech, was like my dad brought home the first computer in whatever year that was. It was like zero RAM, five and a quarter inch floppy drives, you know, the whole thing. And I learned early how to format hard drives, how to foobar your machine by forgetting to do the flash sys at the end. Did that once, that was silly. But yeah, I was the one in the house that made sure all of the stuff worked all the time. I installed the modem by myself. I used to use bulletin board systems when those were a thing, and I would talk to my modem and make sounds because that's what you do when you're a total nerd. And um, I remember... The first programming classes in high school, we actually did Pascal. There was a girlfriend of mine, um, which is, this is just a funny story, right? Where we were going to be sophomores during this Pascal class. And she was like, Erin, I don't really know if, if I'm going to be any good at this. She was amazing at math, like total brainiac. And I'm like, you're going to be fine. I don't understand. And so she, she relented. We did it together. She now works at the NSA. <laughs> And now she does it. She's a closed mouth person too, so it just totally fits that she's at the NSA. But that was how I got started. It was all that long time ago. And then when I went into school, I was doing computer engineering undergrad, computer science, master's degree. And my graduate advisor at the time, because that was when Corba was was being born, basically, this is a million years ago. And so he was into Corba, which therefore meant I was into Corba. So right from the get-go, going from, actually at the time I was also doing some C and C++ and that kind of stuff. So from Corba, I went into into IBM to work actually on what was at the time Component Broker, and that grew into WebSphere, but on the mainframe. So my first couple of years at IBM was actually on, on the mainframe, um, which is a whole different environment. 
to work in. I'm kind of going um, a little maybe into the weeds here, but how did you make the transition from mainframe to Java to local development? Because Java at the time was mainly just desktop and browser-based, right? Well, so so in college, we were doing Java. And that's what I said, like the 1.1. I remember the first Java in a nutshell book. Do you remember those? <clears throat> and I have like the first two huge volumes. They have these really big books. Because at the time, everything you could possibly want to know about Java fit in these two tomes. But they were two inches thick. They're big, big books. And those were, that was in college still. So it was just when I went to IBM, I was actually back in Seed, C++ and Assembler for a little while. Um, and then because of the way WebSphere evolved within IBM, right, we had the WebSphere on ZOS or Component Broker on ZOS that was mostly C and C++ at the time and some assembler stuff. And then we had WebSphere that was on the distributed platform, both of which were trying to do Corva and ORM things and distributed computing. Um, and so those ended up meeting and a lot of code ended up being shared, which brought, you know, the two code bases merged to some extent. So we, that was years of fighting with JNI and ugh, memory management and blah. <laughs> I don't have to do that anymore. <laughs> but we learned a lot doing things at that low of a level. And I, I do think there's a lot of kids, I think, right now coming out of school that have only ever done Java. I feel a little, a little on the fence about whether or not they've missed something. You know, like, I feel like there's cards you earn if you double free or if you, if you allocate memory incorrectly. <laughs> it's, like, it's, an amount of, it's an amount of care that I feel like you know, you need to pay attention to at least at some point in your career so that you're, you know, you're understanding how things work under the covers. But uh, maybe that's just because I had to do it. Maybe it's a hazing thing. <laughs> I had to go through all that pain. So you should have to go through all that pain. I don't know. No, I think there's something to that, really, because I, when I came from the C and C++ realm as well, I was immediately, well, maybe not immediately, it took me a bit to warm up to it. But as soon as I realized that I no longer had to worry about allocating and deallocating memory and you know, worrying about leaks so badly, so much, I guess, I was immediately taken by that. I thought that was amazing. But by the same token, when you do come through that, you're a lot more aware of things, I think. And when you work in constrained environments, so to speak, I think it does make you better or more aware of things and potential pitfalls than you maybe would be otherwise. But yeah, I, I'm not sure it's absolutely necessary, but I think it is useful. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. At some point, um, they started getting the Java out of the IO libraries that had native byte buffers in them, where they had a certain amount that could be shared with native memory. And I felt like when those came, having the previous experience about allocating and managing memory made a big difference because it, that was those, those native white buffers, like you, you had to count those. You had to reference count them and make sure that they got cleaned up because otherwise you were just leaking memory, you were leaking native memory. And I think it also impacted, at least on Z or especially on Z, we have a different resource like it has different resource consumption behavior for threads. And so when you would start, you know, it was like you couldn't create threads willy-nilly because they were much heavier. 
which made you much more conscious of, of you know, algorithmic choices because you couldn't just make threads whenever you wanted to because uh, it had resources, it had, it had performance implications. So it's like, you know, I don't know that that would be obvious to people who didn't have a background in native, like low-level native programming. What I was going to say is I think it's weird. <clears throat> Maybe you can agree with me, but coming from the early days of Corva through then all of the Java EE stuff, and now what's happening with Kubernetes, I'm, are you seeing the cycle that I'm seeing? It's just, it's cracking me up every day. We're, we're basically on the repeat cycle. We're at the stage where instead of, you know, Corva managing transactions and connections and local remote transparency and all that stuff, well, Kubernetes and Istio are starting to do that. I'll handle this routing magic for you. You don't really have to worry about it. You're just gonna go send but send your request out and we'll make sure they go to the right place and that the connection will be secure. It's like you're seeing all the same all the same behaviors where everything was in the app and then they pushed it all into the infrastructure. And then everything's in the app and now they push it down into the infrastructure. And I just think it's funny. I do think we spend a lot of time rediscovering problems and resolving problems and then changing our perspective on problems and solving them differently and then rinse, repeat, <laughs> lather, rinse. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think it's, I think it's generational, right? It's like I'm I've been 20 years at IBM, right? So right now I'm the rebellious teenager yelling at my parents, <laughs> right? Like my corporate parents, right? So all of my corporate parents are stupid; they don't know what they're doing anymore. I'm, I mean, I'm kidding. I love them, but it, it's like it feels to me like you've got a generation, you've got a cohort of people who designed something one way, then you have the next generational cohort. You get convinced they didn't know what they were doing or, you know, technology, the environment changes enough for their legs that it becomes that they didn't know what they're doing. They're going to throw all that out and do it a new way. And then that way, you know, progresses. And the next cohort comes in. It's like, oh, they don't know what they're doing. And it's just the way the pendulum swings. I, I feel like it's because you get different generations learning and improving then, and then a new thing happens. And then, I don't know. It's probably a little more, it's, I don't mean it to sound that adversarial. It just feels to me like that's what happens. There's an old quote by uh, Edmund Burke, I believe. Those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. So yeah. here we are. Here it's we like are. Two generations later. Yeah, two generations later. We're back where we started 20 years ago. There's a different spin on it now, right? Because the virtualization stuff that we have now was not present. But at the start of cloud native hype, right? You saw all the distributed computing mantras from 1984 coming up. There's a talk. I, I have it brewing in the back of my head and I really need to put it down on paper and bring it to a conference. And it's everything we needed to know we learned on the mainframe. <laughs> they had all these problems solved in 1982. <laughs> pick, pick the mainframe stuff. They had all the distributed computing stuff and time coordination and you know memory synchronization and all that stuff. They had it done. And we've just been reinventing that over and over again. I do think though, and, and I'll, I mean, see what your thoughts are on, on this. I think that there are many times that we do fail to take into account the lessons of history, the hard wins that maybe have gone before us. But I do think sometimes that for better and for worse, that when we come up with a new solution to a problem that had been previously solved under a different set of constraints, sometimes we have to do that, I think. And sometimes, oh, yeah. frankly, we come out with a better yeah. solution overall. Yeah, no, we have to. Like, I'm not blaming anybody who had cloud native, like, interpreted 12-factor apps, for example, 
and cloud native stuff and the way Netflix put all of the fault tolerance behavior and the retry behavior and all that stuff and put it in the app. I'm not going to blame them for that. The infrastructure that they were running on was in the middle of just being hyper virtualized, basically. And it couldn't do both things at once. You know what I mean? Like the app had to do the compensation because the environment was just people were just figuring out what to do with the environment. But now with Kubernetes managing more of the environment and providing more of that same capability, and then you have things like Istio and service meshes coming in to, to smooth over even more of those bumps. Well, now this is my saying. There's now this generational thing where it's like, okay, we learned in the past that it's hard to keep that stuff in all of the apps. Too easy for developers to mess it up, for it not to be consistent. You push it down into the infrastructure because they're ultimately infrastructure concerns. But it's like you had to get to a consistent thing, essentially at this point, which is Kubernetes, to be able to make that decision to push things down, right? But back in the, in the second day, right, that was Corva. Corva was handling local remote transparency. Corva was determining thumbs and ties and retries and fragments. And, like, you know, it was like all protocol level stuff which meant the app didn't have to deal with it. It could operate within its boundaries and have the infrastructure, or in that case, it was more of a framework, the app server framework or the, the libraries around it in that sense. It would deal with a lot of it. So in short, we keep rebuilding the primitives and then rebuilding the abstractions and then rebuilding the supporting yeah. network of components around it. Great. <laughs> no, I'm but sad. In, no, in fairness, though, in fairness, we did learn. Thankfully, with this new generation, we're just doing like JSON payloads. When you look at gRPC, that looks a hell of a lot loose to me. And I fell on the floor laughing when I first read the WebSocket spec. I'm like, look, it's JRP packets for HTTP. I mean, I just thought it was so funny. But in doing that with just uh, WebSockets or gRPC, they're still very basic types. They're not making the mistake that we did with Corva and Java value type marshaling which used to make me cry. I was at the transport level implementation details for all of that marshaling stuff, and VOS was an EBCDIC. So not only did we have to convert these value types from big Endian to little, well, yes, V was big Endian, all the distributed platforms were little Endian, but we also had to translate from EBCDIC to ASCII or UTF-8 or whatever it was, which meant within the core of test suites and the Java E compliance tests and all that stuff, there would be times when there would be a marshaling error and it would we'd have to dig through the dump to find the byte that didn't get it was crazy. Like we burned hours combing through binary dumps to figure out where the marshaling error was. Ridiculous. At so I'm really point. thankful now that when we're doing this, we're like, no, it's UTF eight, basic types. <laughs> like we're just we're not doing code page like here, let me put in this service context or you know, let me put in the IOR that it's that these are the code pages I support so that the client can figure out which code page it wants to use. Why did we do that? You know, like we learned that lesson. In this generation of things, we're not doing that, which is smart. Because <laughs> that was just miserable. So progress. So yeah, you know, uh... we are learning. <laughs> we're not completely ignorant, but in some of the other cases, we're still like having to learn the lessons we learned before. 
Well, when we talk, I hear the love and your voice for the tech, all aspects, you know, the coding, but also just the, the archaeology, if you will, you know, kind of digging through things. But is there something in particular that drives you that, that you love most about what you're doing, what you have done, kind of where the industry's heading or anything? Oh, I'm still that nerd that just loves banging on something until it works. Just joy. It's like, oh, we're going to laugh at swear words. Yeah, that's my my favorite. I love it. And some of the, like, these things that I'm passionate about, it's because I had those moments all the way through. Like I said, digging through the value type stuff to figure out which bite was wrong so we could fix it and, you know, do all that stuff. It was absolutely, ridiculously difficult. And over my career, I've been called the refactor queen couple times and you know so there's lessons that I've learned like I go absolutely bananas when people are talking about 100% code coverage for Java and the reason is because again I'm the refactor queen right it's the last minute before the release and there's a memory leak and in order to fix it we have to restructure the code to you know to be more conservative with memory or something to go faster right but I have to go in at the last minute Refactor all this stuff, and Aaron's method of refactoring is I'm going to take all of these files, I'm going to put them over in a different directory, I'm going to create new files, and, you know, structure the, in an object-oriented sense, right, structure the pieces the way I know they have to go together to work better, and then I'll go rummage in the files I moved and, like, pull the code over that's still valid, right, and link it all together again, which is great. And from a getting the end result that you want, it's like being informed from what you did, but not constrained by what you did. So you get to a, like a better result. So let me tell you, if you have unit tests that are at the method level, the per line level, you have completely hamstrung your ability to do that. Completely hamstrung it. Because, you know, at that point, if I want to make a code change and like every little section of code was tested, including the really ridiculous tests that just basically ensure that if you pass a parameter in, you get it back out again. Like you can't then make those kinds of changes without changing the test, at which point you have no confidence that you didn't change behavior. That's important. I go, I go bonkers with it because I spent more time trying to fix J unit test suites that had inherited like a whole inherited system of mocks. I get to the place where in order to get 100% code coverage, they were testing their mocks. They weren't testing their code anymore. And it's like, this is just A, unsustainable, and B, like, it's, like you could, you had no confidence. Yeah, the tests run and they gave you a green code coverage thing, but you had no guarantee that they actually tested anything meaningful. I want to talk about their, their passion right there. <laughs> they burned. It hurts. And I get really mad when people try to say 100% code coverage for Java. There's some other languages where that works better, but Java has so many weird boilerplate whatever that it's sometimes if you really want to get to 100% code coverage, you have to do really ridiculous things that provide no value and constrain your ability to fix problems. Okay, you say that like that's a bad thing. I, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, so for me, like I take I take code coverage as advice. Right. So it's like I will go look at my code coverage report and I'll look at what I've covered and what I haven't. And I'll be like, oh, you know, that path that's not tested, the end result of that actually matters. This is behavior that something else in the system depends on. And I don't have anything that makes sure that that result comes out. So I'll test that. 
But if there's other things that aren't important, like aren't fundamentally important for the results, then I don't worry about it. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and the test coverage metrics are just like any other metric. They're subject to gaming. And I think sometimes when you just focus on the number of digits and I guess the uh, what the number is itself, then you kind of miss the whole point of the utility of it. So, yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, see, I had no idea you were also known as the refactoring queen. That does change a lot, actually, in a really cool <laughs> way. So. <laughs> Now I just want to go to spring one even more just so we can catch up and chat and, you know, kind of cover more ground on this, but to kind of bring things back to spring one, because obviously that's what we're building up to, right? This is kind of our favorite time of the year, at least mine. I hope it is yours too. But a couple of years ago, you were on the main stage at spring one platform presenting about distributed computing and you covered a lot of ground there. Has your thinking evolved on that during the past couple of years or have you solidified your thinking or changed in any way? Well, what we were talking about during during that particular talk um, was some algorithms in distributed com- computing, and those haven't really changed that much. Paxos is still Paxos, like how you, how you get distributed consensus, you know, all that stuff. They're pretty established patterns, um, and there's places where you use them. So that part hasn't changed, and that was that was an amazing experience that I really enjoyed. And Cornelia Davis reached out to me for that, and I. Was both very flattered, and I'm really glad I did it. That was a really cool experience, and and I tell people I'm like I did that. I stood up on the main stage and I didn't die. Like that was great. And all of the women that presented in that session, I mean, it was just it was really great to meet them, and that was just a really great experience. The rest, outside of that particular talk, which was more about consensus algorithms, we've already kind of touched on some of the other distributed computing things, right? And a lot of that has to do with the general move away from some of the original Netflix libraries, for example. And to some extent, even Netflix is moving away from those libraries. A whole bunch of the libraries that they have are ableized, essentially, because they're even they are pushing a lot of these concerns down into the infrastructure and out of the library. And so how we, we Istio isn't, isn't perfectly stable yet. The service mesh concept, I think everybody likes, and it's here to stay, I think there's still a lot of behavior to stabilize, I guess, as people try to make it do all of the things that they need it to do. I think it's sort of unfortunate how much still has to be exposed to the developer in some of these new distributed environments. In some cases, it's absolutely unavoidable. We're making the experience of writing the app and running the app or an application or a service or whatever, like the developer is much more involved in that whole life cycle than they ever were before. And as far as I'm concerned, I think that's great because when we were looking at some of the Java E behaviors, in the, which I know are still present in the industry in a lot of places, the, okay, I've written this app, I've coded it, I've tested it, now I'm gonna throw it over the wall to the ops guys who are gonna impose new roles potentially change how it's deployed. And a lot, I think a lot of the 12-factor manifesto is all rebellion. But no, don't change all this stuff after I've tested it, please, because then if it introduces problems, I have no idea where they came from. And I think there's a lot of validity to that. And if you still look at the myth 
that is any kind of stability between a dev environment, a test environment, a staging environment, a pre-prod environment, and a prod environment, good luck. You know, something breaks. You've got all those environments to maintain, and each of them is going to be differently non-stable. I'm not going to remember names right now, but there's a couple of really prominent people in the field who are like, in these distributed testing, these distributed systems, the only place you're going to get a valid test is in production. Like, you're not going to be able to keep any of your other environments up to date and, and current and consistent. You may as well just put it in production and use routing magic to, to be very selective about how traffic re reaches that new version. And I know that terrifies people because production is the production system is often treated for regulatory or other reasons, you know, they're very protected. But I think when you look at large-scale systems, certainly, like the ability to actually make a production-like pre-prod system or staging system, like it just doesn't work. Within IBM, we have a Kubernetes environment. We have a whole internal infrastructure, right, for all the services that we stand up because we provide, an, you know, IaaS and PaaS and all that stuff. And we've even noticed. So if, when we're writing services that need to be surfaced to users, it's really difficult for us to test those on the internal staging system. Because the infrastructure guys are also testing their things in the staging system, which means as a service provider on top of the infrastructure, or if the infrastructure is unstable, then we can't tell if it's our app or if it's the infrastructure that's having problems, which means we end up testing on the production system with routing tricks. So I think that culture change is interesting. I think moving forward. I mean, we obviously always try to have those non-production systems, those pre-production systems mirror as closely as possible. But the fact that they are not the system means that there will always, always, always be some variation. And I mean, what you're saying is absolutely the truth. You have to have, you have to limit risk, right? You have to accept that you're going to test the heck out of things. You're going to, to do everything you can to not deploy something that would break production. But realizing that at the same time, when you do deploy something to production, you have to limit your risk even there and do this kind of graduated rollout. And if there is damage, very much self-contained, small scope damage. Yeah. Well, I mean, part of it is the shift in how things are deployed, period, right? The monolithic, let me deploy these six more files to my running forever application server, right? I mean, I come from a background of WebSphere ND, network deployment, right? Where we would manage, here's the apps, here's how you want to deploy them, here's the nodes you wanted to play them to, here's how you're going to roll back, here's how you manage your versions. I mean, that was all there. So the servers were running all the time, and you were basically managing how the applications were deployed to those servers, which is similar, right? Because what you do now at the Kubernetes level, it's just you're not deploying a war file, you're deploying a little isolated, self-contained. But it can make people really uncomfortable because managing dependencies or relationships between services is fundamentally more complicated. And it's hard like, I'm just seeing a lot of people struggle with the transition from I need to deploy all of these things at the same time to incremental update of all of the pieces independently. You know what I mean? Still feel like 
even people moving to Kubernetes, they're in a monolithic deployment mode. I've got these five services that are related. I'm going to monolithically deploy all five rather than sticking to the point of cloud native, which is I should be able to update any one of those five alone. Such attention. People have a really hard time. It's ironic because I think you've identified the problem, which is people. The problem is always people. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you, yeah. I mean, it is true. We understand the concepts. We completely embrace the promise. And then we say, okay, to simplify things, I'm just going to make sure I roll out everything at once because that way everything it's consistent. So the whole reason to go to this cloud native microservices stuff is that we don't have to do these big bang releases. Except that I don't understand how to do little pieces, but we're still going to do big bang releases, in which case, why did you break up your monolith to begin with? Why didn't you just leave it as an understood monolith? Yeah. There's no reason to add the complexity if you're going to keep it as a big ball. I mean, there's no reason. Along that same path, you are going to be speaking this year on metrics for the win, using micrometer to understand application behavior. And obviously, the more we need to be able to deal with individual applications, to deal with systems of applications, we need to understand what's happening at a particular point in time to see what's happening as it unfolds and to be able to address that if need be when it happens. So how did you get here? Uh, how did you decide to present on that particular topic? Why did you feel that was important? I mean, obviously, we know it is, but what brought you to the point of saying, hey, this is what I want to present on the Spring One platform this year? Well, I'm a big fan of metrics, and I, it's hard in some cases to, like, as you get into distributed systems, People historically, like coming from Monolith, usually did log analysis, right? They had their logs. They would go scan their logs. They would understand their behavior from logs. Like everything was based on logs. When you get to a big distributed system with all the more moving, all the myriad of moving parts, dealing with centralized logs can get really expensive. There's a lot more data. I understand that Kibana dashboards are useful and stuff, but it's hard to query what you want. Um, and the amount of data you're gathering is just huge. And so metrics, is, they're a much more concise way to represent behavior. And you can be a lot richer in terms of how you get, even though it's a more concise format, you can get a better understanding of what's going on in your system if you use metrics correctly. And if you look at some of the, the monitoring protocols, Google SRE team has one. There's a few others that are not coming to mind right now. This code's brain broken. A lot of them go from, like, let me count errors. Let me count the kinds of errors. Because in terms of getting advanced warning or, you know, better alerting on behaviors that indicate something that actually bad is going to happen, you're much more likely to see that from numerical measurements than you are from log analysis. Both in terms of expense, frequency of gathering, you know, and just how you can analyze numbers versus words. But a lot of people don't understand, they still don't understand how to do that because they're coming from a background where most of what they did was look at logs. I really like the way Micrometer was created. The actuator is really simple to turn on the way you can write to pick your output format without worrying about it. That's also really cool. There is a contrast that I think is going to have to, we're going to have to resolve, which is open census is now combining with open tracing into open telemetry, I think it is. 
And open telemetry also has a metric library. So how we square that with the micrometer library, the sensory library, with the actuator, right? There might be some variation there or, or some resolution to do. But it, it, to me, it's like people need to understand metric better. They need to understand the kinds of things they should be measuring. And it's not just because it, it, it's a better alternative. It's a more compact alternative to trying to analyze logs, which is what we usually do. I think that was like a long-winded, not very smart answer, but that's why I'm interested in the topic. I know it's hard for people to conceptualize or to, to figure out what they should be measuring. I wanted to give some examples. Here's what you should be measuring. Here's why it's important. Here's how you do analysis based on that stuff that you're collecting. And micrometers, I find it fascinating and I, I want to help people understand what they should measure and be interested in adding those measurements to their application. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And that was an absolutely brilliant answer because I think so many times when we arrive at a conclusion, when we say, oh, this is what we need to do and here's how we're going to do this, and then we share that with someone else, we overlook the why because we've gone through all that ourselves, right? We understand the why. We understand why this is important and what we're trying to accomplish with it, that we just kind of skip to the end. We jump to the last chapter in the book and we say, here's the answer and here's who did it and here are all the wonderful things this is going to do for you. And if people don't understand why they would embrace that in the first place, why they would consider it. It's very easy for them to kind of like, well, you know, I'll look at that some other time. And they don't realize they're shortchanging themselves so badly by not understanding. Yeah, yeah the measurement stuff, oh, that's cool. But like, why would I use it directly is really the question, right? Exactly. Just turning on metrics, turning on the actuator, you get a certain amount because because the actuator, as with all things spring, right, it all automatically inserts itself in a, both, in a bunch of places. So you get basic information about runtime behavior. And that part's great. It's easy. You don't have to think about it. But what I think people miss out on is, is some of the other nuance you can get. If you add, if you use micrometers interfaces to add additional measurements, so you can understand the behavior of your system without having to go dig through log files. Like, I kind of feel like you need to use metrics to tell you when you need to go take through the long Right. <laughs> well, I'm really glad you're going to be talking about this and, and presenting on this Spring One platform. So, you know, yet another reason that people should come just for that, just for the one talk. If I could ask, since you are a veteran of Spring One platform, what's your favorite thing? If you had to pick one or maybe just a, your top couple things, I know obviously just getting to chat with me has got to be one of the highlights, right? I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Oh, it is. But, <laughs> but no, actually, I mean, in all honesty, one of the things I like the most about attending Spring One is all the people that you get to meet. It is a great community, right, of, of people that are there to talk about Spring and to talk about other distributed, I mean, at this point, Spring is doing a lot in the distributed computing space, which is interesting to me. And I just find the engagement level with attendees, how interested they are in the technology, how interested they are in talking to each other and talking like last year, I was there just as a vendor. I was just there. I was there as a booth babe. But it's like, you know, the interest level you had even just talking to people was just great. It was fabulous. And that's one of the things I like best about Spring One platform as a conference. Yeah, I think, again, I mean, you you hit on some of my favorite things too, the community, the chance to just exchange ideas and kind of, you know, percolate things that may have been tickling the back of your mind. 
And to be among other people who are just as committed and passionate about it is just awesome. So if someone is kind of on the fence, if they haven't been to Spring One Platform before, if they're kind of kicking around the idea, they're looking at Austin and thinking, wow, great barbecue, but maybe they're not into barbecue. I, I don't know. I mean, I can't understand that, but, but maybe they're not. What would you say to someone who's kind of giving it some thought, who's considering coming to Spring One Platform, but just hasn't decided fully yet? I think for me, it's how, how much you can learn. There's just, there's a lot of sessions. A lot of them are very, very deep. Some of them are still nice and general and broad. Um, but between, I mean, we'll be there as a, as a vendor again, I'd be able to be there with the booth. There's lots of other people that are there. So in addition to the technical talks, where you learn all kinds of things about technology, you can also go to different companies and see how they're using Spring, which can give you a really good perspective on how this whole system is supposed to fit together. We're in an era right now where I feel like there's just so many options, there's so many pieces, there's so many choices about how, like, the, but there's reactive, there's traditional web stuff, there's functions, there's, like, we're just at a place where there's so many choices. Being able to step back and see what, like, get the options in context can help you see a much bigger, if you get a better feel for the big picture. And for me, both the talks and then also the vendors, like you can start to see how these pieces can fit. Maybe that's with me. Not at all. But you did leave out one really key important reason that people should come to Springland Platform, and that's to meet Erin oh. Schnabel. <laughs> that's right. You should come see me. And I will be around. I mean, I, I have that one talk, but otherwise I will be around the IBM booth. So, yeah, I'll be findable. And people should seek you out. I mean, I know you're too modest to say this, but we've been friends for a long time. And Aaron is one of those folks who just really is an absolute joy to talk with because every time I chat with you, I learn so much as well as just having a great conversation. So um, if you haven't made your decision to go to Spring One Platform yet, this is one of the arguably best reasons you could make that decision uh, <laughs> is just to chat with Erin. Obviously, go to her talk, sit in on the, the Metrics for the Win talk, catch up with her, get a chance to, uh, to pick her brain and uh, to, to chat. That by itself ought to do it, right? The barbecue is just an extra. Yeah. <laughs> but in the interim. Oh, and the bat. You can't forget about the bat. Oh, I wonder if it'll be the season for the bat. I don't know if it's the right season for the bat. There's, there's a whole colony of bats that live under one of the bridges in Austin. And it's amazing when they take off at dusk. It's absolutely ridiculously amazing. It's so cool. So anyway, I, but I don't know if it's the right season. I forget if they're just over the summer. Well, I had no idea. Now I'm going to have to look that up. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's so cool. It is so cool. And, and they, they treat it as a, I mean, it is a kind of a protected habitat in a way. They do have some boats that go out on the river so that they can see all these bats coming out from under the bridge. It's a breeding area for the bats. It's just it's so cool. Anyway. Wow. Had no idea. Yeah. So that's just an extra, nice little extra, <laughs> you know, in the evening when your, your brain is full and you need to go out and kind of get away and relax. Yeah. Awesome. Well, yeah. see, again, I learned so much from you and it's not just <laughs> in tech, but who knew? Aaron, in the interim, between now and Springland Platform, how can people get in touch with you? How can they follow you and keep up with what you're working on? I know Twitter is the best way, I think, because I'm partial to Twitter and because I love following your Twitter account. But if you would share with our listeners. I am Ebullient Works on Twitter. If anybody goes and looks up the word Ebullient, 
all of those definitions apply to me. So fair warning. <laughs> all all definitions of that word. That's me in a nutshell. Wonderful. Yeah, Abelian works on Twitter is probably is probably that. Okay, great. Well, between now and then, it just gives us so much more to look forward to. But thank you so much for your time, for taking time out of your busy day, and see you at Spring One Platform. Always great to talk to you, Mark. Likewise. Thanks. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview. I sure did. Hey, and as a bonus for listening this far, if you want to register for Spring One Platform, the uh, wonderful conference we have coming up October 7th to 10th in my hometown, Austin, Texas. When you go to springoneplatform.io to register, you can use the code S1P200 underscore M Heckler. That's M-H-E-C-K-L-E-R. That's Mark's last name. You can find uh, the discount code uh, if you go to pivotal.io slash podcast as well. And that'll get you $200 off the registration uh, fee, price, winning admission, however you want to think about it. Well, uh, we've got several of these coming out. So if you enjoyed this one, you should check out the other ones. And uh, otherwise, tune into the regular Pivotal Conversations each week or so. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.